Well, on the first Sunday of January, we have a tradition at New City Baptist Church. I like to preach a New Year's resolution sermon, something to prayerfully bear in mind that sets something of a trajectory as we move ahead as a church in the next year. So to that end, would you turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verse 27. We'll be returning to our Corinthian series next week, Lord willing, but this is just a one-off, our New Year's resolution sermon, Luke, chapter 6. Verse 27 and following, where our Lord says this. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Are you like me? After having read that text aloud in public, are are you thinking, okay, surely, surely Jesus doesn't intend for us to take this literally. I mean, he's exaggerating for effect, right? I mean, good grief. What what our Lord is prescribing here is, is a short route to chaos. This is just going to, this is a recipe for anarchy. It's not even, it's not even safe. Is this what we're supposed to do? To the Hitlers of the world were to turn the other cheek? What about the law? What about justice? No, no, no. This passage is so over the top. I don't have to seriously consider obeying Jesus. I can just be civil. I can just be nice. Canadians are always good at being nice and polite. That's what I'll do. I just have to keep my mouth shut and not scream insults at the person who treats me like human garbage. And then I've I've kind of more or less followed the spirit of the thing. Well, I'll be honest, that's actually how I, I sort of feel about this text. How about you? Well, if you're thinking something along those lines, if you're sinfully perverse as I am, then you need to ask, is that what Jesus requires? Is that what our master is calling us to? 
to leave by a different set of doors or to cross the street when I see my enemy approaching. To register a civil smile if I accidentally meet them at the office water cooler before escaping to my desk and patting myself on the back for being so civil to such a detestable person. Is that the higher ethic the citizens of Jesus' inaugurated kingdom are to display to the world? Not even close. Brothers and sisters, our hearts are desperately wicked, and we'd like to fool ourselves into thinking that's really all God demands. Be polite, be civil, be a good Canadian. Wouldn't life be so much easier if that were the case? No need for humiliating self-abnegation. And it would make what this text requires of Christians sound a little more realistic, right? A little more achievable. Just be nice to your persecutor or your utterly revolting relative, and that's good enough. Now, I've prayed to God that I'd be able to preach this text with compassion because there's, there's a balance here that I need to strike. Uh, sympathetic and loving, yes, yet faithful and unafraid to probe the dark areas of our hearts, that, that really stony soil. That's the balance that Jesus strikes in his teaching. He doesn't allow excuses for our sin. And he demands of us a love that he himself models for sinners. But perhaps you're thinking, but Pastor John, you don't know what my enemy is like. I've never told you, I've never told anyone what my enemy has done to me. You don't know how I've been terribly, disgustingly sinned against for years. Love them. Pray for them. Sure, in theory, I know I should. We all need to be more like Jesus. I'm not denying that. But I'm not there yet. Nor do I really want to be. Nor am I really trying to be. Frankly, that person doesn't deserve my love. Frankly, this demand is impossible, nor is it good for my psychological health, my emotional health. This is a dangerous teaching. In fact, no one who wants to be my friend would push me to conform to this kind of standard. All my Christian friends are free to weep with me, but they're not allowed to hold me to account. I don't go there in my discipleship relationships, and neither should you in your preaching, Pastor John, and neither should Jesus. Okay, let me be perfectly clear. The basis of our assurance of full salvation, the assurance of sin forgiven, the assurance of future glory is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus' sin-atoning death, 
Jesus' resurrection. And that's a truth that all of us need to guard and keep very, very close to our hearts. As long as we're trusting in Jesus alone, however falteringly, our faith will work out in terms of growing understanding, obedience, perseverance, and final glorification, however challenging the way may be at times. But, and this anticipates our text this morning and and the hard questions we need to ask in its light, but, all that, but the Bible never allows our assurance of salvation in Jesus and his saving gospel or the character of God, either his grace, his mercy, his love, his forgiveness, or the nature of the new covenant, or the finality of election, or the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, to ever become an excuse for spiritual indifference. An excuse for sin and disobedience. And if we drift from or rebel against Jesus and his way, and I I don't mean some stupid painful, sinful lapse of, of, of temporary rage against his rightful authority. I mean, we're all, we know from experience like just how fickle we can be. Um, I'm talking about sustained defiance, all right? I'm talking about unrepentant, habitual disobedience in the face of the word of God. If we're doing that, then sooner or later, we call into question the genuineness of the trust we claim to place in Jesus. And we are in real danger of hell. Because the New Testament insists that the God who has called his people into his new covenant works powerfully in us to conform us to the likeness of his son. The Holy Spirit in a continuous, gracious, sovereign, sanctifying work empowers God's new covenant people to produce spiritual fruit in every case without exception what this means is that we must all guard against the biblical contradiction of being a people who uh, live in the power of this age of god's spirit united together in one body of jesus christ minds renewed by god's spirit and god's word we're a new creation while supposedly being transformed into a people who do not love our enemies a people who withhold forgiveness. That's an utter New Testament contradiction, a new covenant contradiction. Yes, this is a lifelong process. Our conformity to the image of Jesus is progressive, and it will remain incomplete until the last day, but that's never an excuse not to always be striving, striving for holiness, striving for the perfection that God requires, to be training ourselves in godliness, to be repenting of sin, brothers and sisters, fleeing evil and pursuing righteousness, to be merciful, just as our Heavenly Father is merciful. Because where there's new birth genuinely coming from God, we will see transformation. There is going to be change. Not sinless perfection. That doesn't happen until the resurrection. But where new birth takes place, there is a change of direction. Remember those famous words of John Newton, the former slaver. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. 
I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. One more thing before we jump into the text. This is a massive topic, and Luke 6 does not address all the questions that we likely have on this issue. This morning, we're only looking at one thin slice of what the Bible teaches regarding a Christian's love for our enemies. Uh, But the Bible approaches this issue of love for enemies from a variety of angles, It has much to say on the subject because it's a matter that's very close to God's heart. After all, God is a person. He is a person who loves his enemies. He loves them enough to send his son to die for us. And if we read through the entire gospel of Luke, what is the ultimate, ultimate model of love towards enemies that we're to be imitating? It's that same cruciform, gospel-centered example of love that we see on Calvary's Hill. That's just being assumed in every word of our text this morning. So if you look at your handout, you can see at the top a cruciform, a gospel-centered definition of love. I'm taking this from Paul David's Tripp's book, What Did You Expect? Redeeming the Realities of Marriage. This is an excellent definition of love. Love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. That's the love of Jesus for his enemies right there. On the cross, Jesus asks his father to forgive the very enemies who are killing him. And that's to be the love that we demonstrate to our enemies and our friends, and our parents, and our spouse, and our children, our brothers and sisters at New City Baptist Church. Love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation that the person being loved is deserving. New City, as children of the Most High God, we are to love our enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. We're to be merciful, just as our Father is merciful, just as He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked, ungrateful and wicked people like us. And so we're accepting the wrongs committed against us by being willing to forgive, by being willing to turn around a second time and still offer help even if that means being abused yet again. Christian love is available. Christian love is vulnerable. Christian love is subject to repeated abuse. That's what we'll be primarily focusing on today, but interconnected. With this are other themes, huge, huge biblical themes we can't explore at this time. Things like God's love, um, the role of suffering in the Christian's life, the role of the state even, uh, both as a force of civil good 
who does not bear the sword in vain, as well as a source of persecuting evil against God's people. The massive and connected theme of Christian forgiveness. I mean, that's a whole sermon series unto itself. Justice, both in this world and in the world to come. Kinds of enemies and varieties of loving response. Because just as there's a diversity of enemies we can have in this life, there's also a variety of love we are called to display. We just don't have time to look at all of it. We can try to put it all into a very tidy box, but the truth is, when we put aside its sentimentalism, the topic of true biblical love is anything but tidy. But we can't permit, permit the rich breadth of biblical teaching from hearing, our, hearing the word of the Lord today. Uh, let's just listen again to verse 27. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Period. Full stop. Now, this teaching of our Lord takes place, this sermon takes place on a plane. We've all heard of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, In Luke's gospel, some of that same teaching that we're so familiar familiar with in Matthew's gospel takes place on a plane. P-L-A-I-N, right? Not an aircraft. Uh, Jesus was an itinerant preacher, so he preached his sermons and parables repeatedly. And on this occasion, he's, his preaching takes place on a, on a piece of level ground. So look at verse 17 of chapter 6. <clears throat> he went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. And then Jesus preaches the first part of his sermon, a a series of blessings and woes, which I've unforgivably skipped. All right, But there are connections. Look at verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you. When they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the son of man. So hate, exclusion, insult and rejection all on account of our Christian witness. And what are we supposed to do when people persecute us for Jesus? Which assumes obviously that we're we're talking about Jesus and we're living for him. We're living a a, a holy life. Um, Look at verse 23. Rejoice in that day. And leap for joy, (laughs) because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. So do you see that, I mean, there's there's a great reversal going on here. There's the way that things are now, and there's the way that things will be. So the rich and the well-fed are those who are proud, and they rely on their own resources. They don't rely on God. They don't need God. But woe to you who are rich. For you have already received your comfort. Verse 25. Woe to you who are well fed now. For you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now. For you will mourn and weep. Now obviously persecution can take many different forms. We don't have to limit it just to what our brothers and sisters are experiencing in places like Afghanistan and North Korea. Persecution includes things like insults and spoken malice. For instance, a Christian in the West who practices biblical righteousness may be ridiculed by their family. 
They may be ostracized by their relatives. Or maybe, maybe you're an Ontario doctor working in palliative care who will not euthanize your patients. You conscientiously object. Or you're a GP or you're a gynecologist who will not give an abortion referral. And so you can now face professional misconduct proceedings and discipline at the hands of the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario. Frankly, you may have to change your specialty or move to another province or another country if you wish to continue practicing medicine. That, that's persecution. This text speaks to that. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. But we don't, have to, we don't want to think that, that enemies in this context only has to do with people who persecute us for religious reasons. I mean, Jesus goes beyond that. Uh, Jesus' teaching certainly includes that, but his command of love includes all people, enemies of every stripe, not just religious persecutors, all right? So look at point number one in your bulletin, the what. And, and here is a vision of love that's rich and costly. Jesus commands, love your enemies, not rip your enemies apart in your mind while exalting yourself. Savor their sinfulness like a rich candy. You can roll around in your mouth under your tongue. Oh, man, they are sinful. They are wicked. While contrasting their sin with your holiness. Their sin with your innocence. Their sin with your moral uprightness. Maybe you're prone to do that. I, I certainly am. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Hostile people expect hostility in return. Jesus says, surprise them. Love them. Do good to them, to those who hate you, your enemies. So ask yourself right now, what good thing can I do for that person who has done bad things against me? Because this must, it must move from the, the theological abstract into the practical in all of our lives. I think our biggest danger here is that as Christians, I mean, sure, we agree in theory with everything our Lord says, but nothing changes, right? We don't repent. By God's grace, that stops today. Really think about that person at work or in your family or who lives next door, that person you hate and for whom you never pray. You would die of shame. You, you would feel like you were crawling in the undignified dust if you ever brought them the gift of a coffee from Starbucks or even Tim Hortons. <laughs> Do you have that person in mind? Ask yourself, how can you help them?
them? How can you serve them? Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And, and to bless our enemies is to call on God to bestow his favor upon them. Oh, the knife goes in deep. For God to bestow his favor upon our enemies. It, it's the opposite, of course, of cursing, asking God. We're praying to God to bring disaster or spiritual ruin on a person. I did that sometimes as a little kid when my mom punished me. <laughs> I go into my room crying and praying, God, please, please kill her. <laughs> Let her I hope she gets hit by a truck and dies. You know, but, but the temptation can still be there as an adult. Lord, teach my personal enemy a lesson they won't soon forget. No, they may curse us, but we do the opposite. Pray for those who mistreat you. Literally. That's not figurative speech. And it's not a suggestion. Jesus commands us to die to self and pray for people who abuse and mistreat us. We pray to God that he would bestow his favor upon them, even asking that we might be the agent of God's blessing. So I ask, brother, sister, are you tempted to hate somebody in this life? Perhaps someone who has sinned against you terribly. Are you tempted to curse them in your heart? Or perhaps you're not tempted to hatred. I mean, you gave in to that sin long ago. You hate them. It's habitual. It's unrepentant. You feed off of it. You've nurtured hate and bitterness in your heart for years. And you wish, you even pray that God would destroy your enemy. Ruin them. Humiliate them. Kill them. Cause them terrible suffering and pain. That they would receive something back of what they did to you. Brother, sister, if that's you, then you have serious business with God. You need to repent. Jesus says, love them. Do good to them. Bless them. Pray for them. Pray in particular for their salvation. Pray that they would see their sin and rebellion against the holy God, that they would cry out as you did, Christian, against you and you only have I sinned. And that God would grant them faith, he would grant them repentance, and save them from the wrath to come. Pray that one day you might be able to call your hated enemy your brother or your sister in Christ. Pray that the Lord would use you to proclaim the gospel to them. That they would believe it and that you might live with them forever in the new heavens and new earth. Move from buying them a coffee to proclaiming the gospel to them. 
Pray the Lord would show them their need of Jesus and his sin-atoning sacrifice, just as he once showed you, though you were his enemy and utterly undeserving. New City, our prayers for our enemies are a means of grace God uses to make us more like Jesus. It's, it's difficult over the long haul to hate those for whom we pray. Try it. See if that's not true. It is difficult over the long haul to hate those for whom we pray. And there is grace sufficient flowing from the cross for us to obey this command. Start with this, all right? So here's baby step number one. Pray for God's blessing upon your enemy, particularly their salvation. And pray to God for grace for you to love them and to do good for them. That's where we start. Not to hate them. And how about this? Allow your uh, ISF discipleship partner here at New City to talk to you about this. Give them permission to address this sin in your life. And the rest of us will do the loving thing by praying with you and, yes, weeping with you but asking you about this, keeping you accountable, not walking on eggshells of social awkwardness and avoiding the sin of hatred in your life. Elizabeth Howard was born in Belgium in 1926, where her parents served as missionaries. She moved to the U.S. as an infant and went on to attend Wheaton College, where she studied classical Greek. She wanted to be a missionary. She wanted to work in an area in the area of unwritten languages and Bible translation. And while at college, Elizabeth met her future husband, Jim Elliott. After graduation, and for five years before their engagement, Jim and Elizabeth served in different parts of Ecuador. Elizabeth eventually accepted Jim's marriage proposal and the condition attached to it, to learn the Ecuadorian Quichua language before they got married. And so in 1953, Jim and Elizabeth married in Ecuador and continued to work in that nation. Jim Elliott had always wanted to enter the territory of an unreached tribe, to live with them and proclaim the gospel to them. So he chose the Aucas, a fierce group of people whom no one had succeeded in meeting without being killed. After discovering the location of the tribe, Jim and four other missionaries entered Alca territory, Elizabeth stayed behind with their 10-month-old daughter and continued to live among the Kichwa tribe. But after Jim and the four other missionaries made friendly contact with three members of the Alka tribe, they were speared to death. Now Elizabeth Elliot was alone with her 10-month baby daughter. But a little while later, God opened a door. She met two Alka women. They came to live with her and the Kichwa tribe, and they taught her their tribe's language. So then Elizabeth, along with the sister of one of the other four missionaries who were killed, went as a missionary to serve the tribe that killed her husband. And in God's sovereign providence, 
This eventually led to the conversion of many Aukas, including some of those involved in the killing. So tell me, was Elizabeth Elliot a religious fanatic? Was Elizabeth Elliot an undignified human carpet for those murderers to walk on? No, she was a Christian. Elizabeth Elliot was imitating Jesus' love for her, supremely demonstrated in his death on the cross. Love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And then Jesus gives us five illustrations of how Christians love their enemies. Number one, verse 29, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. Now, this isn't a picture of someone mugging you in the street and pummeling you with their fists. This is a sharp backhanded slap, which is really more of an insult than a painful blow. And Jesus is saying that his followers are to be prepared to take another one rather than retaliate. That, that's the thrust. Jesus is saying, gladly endure the insult again. And this is the start of a pattern. We're going to see this all throughout the passage. God expects us, loved ones, to be guided by a frame of mind that does not place priority on our personal rights. Man, we're, we're part of the wrong religion <laughs> if we think we have all kinds of personal rights. Uh, we don't have any rights, do we? Uh, we? We were bought with a price. We're all slaves. And we're accepting wrongs committed against us by being willing to forgive, by being willing to turn around a second time and still offer help, even if that means being abused again. Because Christian love is available. Christian love is vulnerable, and it's subject to repeated abuse. Verse 29b, if someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. It's the same thing. Even those things which are we regard as ours by right of law, which may even be our right by law, we must be prepared to abandon. God expects us to be guided by a frame of mind that does not place a premium on our personal rights. Paul's been going at that hammer and tongs in our Corinthian series, hasn't he? Give to everyone who asks you. Have a generous spirit. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Now, be careful here. The issue is not the wisdom or foolishness of lending money to everyone who comes along or giving money to every panhandler we meet on the streets of Toronto. Jesus is a wisdom teacher, and in wisdom literature, there are two ways and two ways only. There is no gray in wisdom literature. Uh, the burden of the passage is that God will not tolerate a mercenary, tight-fisted, penny-pinching attitude. 
We can't be asking ourselves all the time, what's in it for me? What, what can I get out of this? God expects us to be guided by a frame of mind that doesn't place a premium on our personal rights. Even our legal rights may sometimes have to be abandoned. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Now, here's the interesting thing. The negative form of this command is known in many religions. Uh, So do not do anything to anyone that you would not want them to do to you. Uh, But Jesus gives the positive form of the rule. So the negative formulation would be this. If you don't enjoy being robbed, then don't rob other people. If you don't like being cursed, then don't curse others. If you don't like being clubbed over the head with a stick, then don't club other people over the head with a stick. The positive formulation that Jesus phrases is like this. If you enjoy being loved, love others. If you like to receive things, give to others. If you like being appreciated, appreciate others. It's far more searching than the negative, isn't it? Jesus doesn't give us permission, brothers and sisters, to withdraw into a world where we offend no one but accomplish no positive good. The the way that Jesus commands this is do good actively. It's a call to Christian action. Verse 31, do to others as you would have them do to you. So don't merely sit on your duff being civil and polite. Go out there and do action. And do action for your enemies. Which takes us finally to the why, point number three. Why Christians love their enemies. What's going to motivate us to live like this? What Jesus does first is he gives us three examples of love, and then he asks what's special about it from a Christian perspective given that even the worst of people love those who love them back. The implication clearly being that Christians are to exhibit a more demanding love. We're to love even the wicked. We're to love even the ungrateful. We're to do them good. The world's standard of love isn't enough, according to Jesus. Verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? There's there's nothing special in that. Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Big deal. There's nothing remarkable about that. Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. So the question becomes, how am I as a Christian, demonstrating any sort of higher ethic than just, uh, I'll scratch your back, friend, if you scratch mine first, right? Uh, If you fill my love tank, then I'll fill your love tank. But love your enemies, verse 35. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And the reward in question... This great reward are things which are the results of God's approval. 
and which will be lavished upon us in his consummated kingdom. Loved ones, the reward of the new heaven and the new earth will be wonderful beyond our wildest expectation. And, and the best reward of all, of course, will be the presence of God in an unqualified, unrestricted, and personal way. We will see him face to face. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. That is, that you will demonstrate that you are children of the Most High when you act this way. How? By imitating God's care, God's compassion, even for those who are ungrateful, even for those who are wicked. Be merciful, verse 36, just as your Father is merciful. Do you know what this is going to require, Christian? A willed response of obedience. There's just no way any of us are going to drift into loving our enemies. So what we need to do, all of us, is to get down on our knees and pray for self-effacing kindness, for gentleness, a spirit of forbearance, and a spirit of forgiveness. We need to meditate hard on the love of God toward us in Jesus Christ. That's what's going to motivate and empower this text in our lives. And by a Christ-exalting act of the will, we must learn to accept less than we might think we're due. I think I'm due a lot. I've got a lot coming my way in my sinful perception of things. The children of the Most High God are to be guided by a frame of mind to place a premium on our rights. I actually don't have those things coming. In our heart, we need to be able to say to someone... You may have offended me. You may have mistreated me. You may have misjudged me. Worse than that, you may have mis- You may not have given me what I deserve. You may not have given and may have given me what I do not deserve. You may have ruined my reputation with some. You may have acted in hostility against me. I may have been the recipient of your injustice, of your mistreatment, of your hate. But I humbly and I graciously accept it with patient, forbearing, gentleness, and love. I will love you. I will do good to you. I will bless you. I will pray for you. I will turn the other cheek. I will humble myself and not insist on my rights. I will do positive good. I will do to you as I would have you do to me. I'll take that first step. I will be merciful even as my father in heaven is merciful toward me, an ungrateful, wicked sinner. And isn't that exactly what the grace of God is like. 
God says to us, you may have hated me. You may have been my enemy. You may have shaken your fist in my face. You may have blasphemed me. You may have mistreated me and misjudged me. You may have done all of that, sinner, and yet I still reached out to you in love. Isn't that the model of Jesus? 1 Peter 2.23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Or think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 12 to 13. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Or Galatians 5, 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. This is what marks a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. May it mark us, New City, in the year 2022. Amen.